Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, just wanted to follow on from a previous discussion and topics around Elixir companies getting funding and being successful in the eyes of investors. There were just a few more that kind of came in this last week that we wanted to share. One was Supabase raises $6 million for its open source Firebase alternative. So what I think is really interesting there is that it's open source. Another one is a new corporate card company called Ramp. They've secured $30 million for money-saving company credit programs. And Spiff raised $10 million this summer for its Elixir-powered product. Spiff helps with managing more complex commission structures. I just wanted to throw in there, I was reading through some issues and I saw Jose Valim comment on the LiveView engine. So what's interesting in LiveView or not so interesting for people starting out is like when you do something like a form four, you can't do a do block like you normally would. You have to like bind it to a variable and then end the form. Well, we'll we'll put a link in because coding verbally is difficult, but he mentioned that he's working on removing some of these limitations maybe in the far future, but I don't know. I just thought it was always interesting because whenever you introduce someone to LiveView, this always comes up. Why can't I use do blocks? Why can't I do like normal things that I would use when I wasn't using LiveView? So hopefully that gets fixed in the future. It's been kind of a weird nuance to work around. Yeah, it sounds like it uh, may require some restructuring to how EEX templates are managed internally. So very cool. Uh, it's, it's another pain point I've seen too. So any improvements there are good for developer experience. Also in the news, Chris McCord wrote a new blog post uh, describing the the happy inner workings of uh, LiveView and AlpineJS for client-side animations or interactions, uh, really. Nice blog post, uh, lots of good details in there. We talked to Chris about this in episode 24, so go back to that episode to get some more details. But what I liked about this uh, this blog post was that it, it gave some some good rules of thumb on how to decide when something should be handled by the server or stay on the client side uh, for browser effects only. He, he goes deeper and tells uh, how to keep Alpine up to date um, as live view patches the DOM. Uh, it's a good thing. So things like, uh, you know, you have, you have a, a popover or a little drop down, uh, things like that, that don't need data from the back end to populate what's in those menus. Yeah, just put it all in the DOM and, and control the visibility from Alpine. So it's nice to see that, you know, he's, he's talking about this and giving some good guidelines to the community. Yeah, I have to say, I've really been enjoying using Alpine just in that way, just for simple little things in my LiveView applications. So plus one for this approach. So I saw a pull request go through that got merged recently. If you're not familiar with Open Browser in 015, LiveView introduced this test helper for LiveViews where you could pipe into Open Browser and it would let you open up the rendered HTML in your browser to kind of see what your test was up to and what it had rendered when it failed. And you know, like, oftentimes your your logs will get truncated, so you can't actually see past your complex navigation bar, like, what was going on. So what was happening, though, is there was no CSS being rendered, so this PR fixes it. So when it renders, it actually pulls your CSS in as well, and you get to see your full-fledged app what it looked like in the middle of that test. So this is really helpful for debugging those finicky tests you've got. Maybe you don't. Live view testing is pretty nice. (laughs) (laughs) And just so I understand too, I think this open browser bit is only that portion of the page, right? It's not the entire page. 
I think it depends on where you rendered it. Okay. I have used it and tested on just like a particular live component or a particular live view, which is a portion. So it's not the entire page. Right. And it is okay, just cool. that segment of the page that's being rendered. Nice. So another item is just wanted to highlight the library Etso. So you're familiar with Ecto, which is your database schema library management for querying and, and modeling your data. Etso, it's not new, but it came up recently and it was new to me. And I don't think a lot of people know about it. And it sounded really interesting. So I just wanted to mention this. It's a library by Avadni Wu that makes it easy to store Ecto schema structs in an ETS table and it supports simple searching. Because if you've ever used an ETS table directly and you have to write these custom matcher statements, they're not intuitive how you write these matchers. And so this just says, hey, if you're doing some basic where kind of querying by ID or by attribute, this will let you do that. And it just abstracts the whole thing away. Now, a good use case that was shared is that the ERLEF website is using Etso to cache and query news and event postings that are parsed and imported into the repo and application startup. So it works really well for static data that's not frequently changing. You think like system pick lists and things like that, that is just going to be accessed a lot. It makes a lot of sense to model them as Ecto schemas, but you don't have to hit the database form. So it's just an interesting one. I want to make sure people were aware of. I'd like to think of it as like you want the API of Ecto, but you want to use something like ETS or Redis and in, in, in memory cache. So use the Ecto API to, to look for model your data and search for data, but still get all the performance benefits of the in-memory in cache. It's nice. Next up, Jose Valim uh, was a guest on the Semaphore CI podcast where he talked about creating Elixir, his motivations, and where things are at today. So we'll leave a link in the show notes if you're interested in listening to that. Yeah, it was a good 30-minute interview. And some of the things I liked about that were where he gave some backstory on how functional programming, what that meant to him when he first got started was immutable data was a big part of that. And then how concurrency became all the rage in like Go and and you can write concurrent Ruby and Java. But like when concurrency is built into the primitives, it changes everything and it changes how you think about things and it just puts concurrency first. It was a really good interview uh, just to kind of get an overall kind of picture of where Jose was coming from with creating Elixir. And finally, in general industry news, this is not specific to Elixir. A recent report came out talking about the state of software security and addressed a number of very popular frameworks, including PHP, C++, Java, and .NET, and naming them as the most frequently flawed. Now, Elixir didn't appear in this list, but I think that's probably because it's not as widely adopted at this point. But I bring this up because in Elixir, we are not immune to these same types of issues. This can be as simple as a broken access control, which means you're accessing resources that belong to another account or user just by changing the ID and the URL. If you're just using Phoenix generators and you have nested resources that may belong to an account or a customer or something else up above, and you're just using a generator, it's not going to be aware of those things. And I've seen that just in reviewing PRs. It's just a reminder to stay vigilant. Have a happy new year, everyone. And that's it for the news. Today, I'm really excited to be able to have our special guest, Jason Axelson. Now, Jason and I have kind of been trying to get this interview lined up for some time because he's been working on some really cool stuff, both with what we've talked about before with DepVis, which is a recent project that shows dependency visualization online, but also he works on the Elixir LS project. So we're glad to have him on. 
Jason, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So Jason, before we jump into a lot of the cool stuff that you've been doing and sharing with the community, let's first just learn a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit about where you live and what kind of work you're doing. Cool. So I live in um, Honolulu, Hawaii. Let's see. So the work I'm doing right now is I work at a company called um, Animal Repair Shop, which is based on a character from um, Do Andrew's Dream from Electric Sheep. Um, and we worked in like mixed reality. So think like augmented reality. But unfortunately, I can't talk about none of our projects are public yet. So I can't talk about them. Are you using Elixir for them? I am using Elixir. Yeah. For the back end, at least. <laughs> Have to learn more about that later when there's something that you can talk about. Yeah. So, Jason, how long have you been using Elixir? And maybe what was the languages that you used most recently before coming to Elixir? So, I've been using Elixir at least like three or four years now. Um, before that, surprise, surprise, I was working um, in Ruby on Rails. We were, I was at a company called um, Hobnob at the time. So, we were adding like a chat um, feature to it. So, Phoenix was a good fit for it. And then eventually, we started to move more of the new development over there to Elixir and Phoenix. That seems to be, at least it's this kind of a story I've heard a number of times where it's like, hey, we were doing this yeah. thing and we wanted to add chat. <laughs> and like that, that seems to be like the wedge maybe that Phoenix kind of gets in the door. Yeah, and it worked, and it worked great. And like, especially in terms of like the resources we're using on the, the Rails side compared to the, all the Phoenix stuff, it was very big difference. So maybe you could introduce this uh, project that you recently talked about, which is called DepthViz. I'm just curious, for one, maybe you can give us an overview of what it is, but like, what kind of made you think of creating this too? DepthViz is a project to view all your compilation dependencies of your Elixir projects. It came about because at my on one of the projects that I work on, number of files being compiled, but then especially the comp compilation time just kept kind of growing. And I was getting very um, annoyed by how long it was taking whenever I changed any file. And it would take I don't know, at least like five seconds to recompile, which is like a long time compared to like a fresh project. And it was recompiling maybe like 30 different files at a time. And then at one point I started digging into it and like, it's like all these like unrelated files. And so I just got really frustrated by that. And I like to say that I do a lot of um, um, yak shaving driven development, <laughs> which if you look at my projects, you can definitely see. And so I started looking at um, all those compilation dependencies and some of the tools that, the standard tools that we have for it in Elixir. Uh, and mainly that is a tool called GraphViz. And if you've ever seen output from some of these GraphViz graphs, they get very unintelligible very quickly. So it's just very hard to trace down like what is causing your issues from that. And you can also view it, there's also a text-based view that you get directly from um, a MixXref graph. But that just takes a long time to go through. Yeah, it was just taking longer than I wanted. So I got frustrated by it. And I wish that something better existed. So I decided to just create it. I love how spite drives development sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So Jason, I think it's interesting. You know, you talked about like some of the built-in tools like Mix, XREF, Graph, some of these things that help. It has text output of what our project's dependencies look like. And so I'm just curious about how did you go about trying to visualize that? Because you chose not to use GraphViz because like you'd mentioned it, some of the complexity of what you end up seeing is like too hard to understand when, it, when you're at that level of scale of that many nodes. How did you go about then representing it 
to make it be more intelligible. Yeah, so Graphviz ended up with just way, way too many lines, and just the layout algorithm wasn't good. And so one that I have worked with in the past is um, D3's force layout. So actually, previously, I created a visualization of um, Hawaii um, campaign spending. We'll drop a link to the show in the show notes for that. And that used force layout just to view, created like a single circle for each um, contribution type for a candidate. And I liked how that laid it out and made the information more visible. And then I know you can also use um, the force layout to create links between different nodes. So to me, that seemed like a natural fit for this type of analysis. That's really cool. And I love that you put it up as a Heroku app that people can just go and play with. And like when I first heard about Mm -hmm. this and I heard that this tool is available, it's like, oh, well, how is that actually going to work? Do I have to upload all my source code? You know, I'm not going to do that. You know, like, or do I have to download something and run it on my project? And so maybe you can kind of just explain what it is people can do and like what they are sharing. So when I built it and hosted it, um, one of my concerns was definitely to use the minimal amount of, or to, yeah, to not require as much information about the user's project as possible. And actually right now, your actual modules don't actually even hit um, the server at all. It just all runs um, locally. That may change in the future if I want to do more analysis, but I don't think that will... I think there'll just be... Potentially there might be some features that you need to run locally for, but I wanted to do as much, just as much with the live hosted version as possible, just to make it really easy to get started with. And But even if... The file you selected um, was uploaded to the server. It would only have the output of mixxref, which is just all your module names or file names and what files they depend on and what type of dependencies they have. So maybe some of the names are like definitely particularly like copyright or whatever, but there's not really very much some um, secret sauce in the, in those anyway. So I'm curious then. You had this project that was the motivation for saying I, I want to solve this problem. Why is this mm-hmm. going slow? So how are you able to use this visualization then to tease apart and and improve that experience? Or were you able to? Yeah, I was able to. I was able to cut it down from like those 30 files in five seconds on all these unrelated files. Like I'm touching maybe a view on my my code and it's actually recompiling this whole other like subsystem that I had. And the subsystem had used a lot of um, compilation uh, macros, which causes some of these sorts of compilation um, dependency issues because it's actually it was like parsing a Google sheet that I had downloaded as a CSV and using that to generate a bunch of functions locally. But obviously, you don't need to touch those when you're working on the view. Partially through developing um, DevViz, I was able to track down what those were. So that so at that point, a lot of it was just like mousing over um, individual files in my visualization and seeing what they connected to and trying to find oh does it make sense for this to be connected to that. And for this other file to be connected to the, to this and just seeing like, oh crap, like 50% of my project causes these files to recompile those. That shouldn't make sense. It should be constrained just to that individual um, subsystem. For me, as someone who's coming to this project and, you know, saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with some of these compilation problems. I have a large project that's been going for several years. It's mature in that way. I'd love to be able to improve some of these relationships. How can I use this tool? to help me do that? Like, what am I looking for to, to be able to improve that experience? Yeah, so you get started, you, you upload your, um, the MixSRF output, and I kind of walk you through it on the website. So first thing, you'll see like all your modules, and you'll see all the different types of links between them, whether it's the um, compile time, or export, or um, runtime. Well, this is if you're using Elixir 1.11. 
So actually, first thing you should do is upgrade to Xalert 1.11 because mm -hmm. that greatly improves a lot of the compilation um, tracking and it reduces the amount of compile dependencies that you'll have for some common um, features in Elixir. But once you actually are looking at the tool, where you get the most bang for your buck is there is a top stats section. And that'll show you which files um, cause the most recompilations in your project and also which ones get recompiled most often. So that's two ways of looking at similar issues. So by looking at those, you can hover over them and then you can see which other files they're linked to. And if you click on them, I should actually create a guide to some of this, but if you click on one of those top files, then it'll um, focus on that file. And if you mouse over files from there, then you can see um, the path to that file. So you can see like why these two files are linked and if they are at all. Once you understand that, that gives you like a kind of idea of where you probably want to look. And then you can actually start digging into the specific code in that file. And then really, it wouldn't be the code in that file so much as um, the file that it is. Yeah, so the file that that file has a compilation dependency on. That's the file that will be causing the um, problems if there are problems. And another note is that um, I thought about trying to create like a some sort of grade for your project, but that's not really possible because you maybe really do need all these compilation dependencies. So that's not something you can really just give after the fact. Does this work uh, in any way with uh, Sasa Yurik's uh, library called Boundary? And or or if not, you know, would, would there be some interesting ways that it could work with it? So right now it doesn't work with it um, at all directly. Um, I think the latest version of Boundary doesn't actually create any compiled dependencies, which is which is good. That is something I would like to add in the future. So the way it would probably work would be you might have to have like a separate mode for Boundary, but you'd have like a, maybe a button you would click on, and then ideally all your nodes, which are represented as circles in the visualization, um, will highlight with a color per um, boundary that they are a part of. And that would give you a visual view of what boundaries you have. And it would also be good to... Boundary actually has um, Graphviz output support. And because Boundary, you only have a few different nodes, that view works well for it. And it would be cool to actually include that view um, on um, DevViz itself. And actually, the, an early version of DevViz did have um, Graphviz output via D3. And if you look at the code, it's actually in there. It's just commented out or it's not... <laughs> not included on the main views, but you can actually parse a Graphviz output file in JavaScript and then view it all, all there. And you could even do some analysis between um, your different boundaries and see like how many cross-boundary um, compilation dependencies you have, and maybe it'll try to recommend you to, to reduce those. But yeah, I'm a big fan of Boundary. I use it on pretty much all my projects of any size. It's great. I've been very interested in Boundary as well. One of the things I... From the Boundary GitHub page, it says, this is experimental. And, you know, he gives all these caveats, right? <laughs> like, it's particularly yeah. say, is it, it can make really large projects go really slow because it recursively recompiles. And I'm just curious, is like, if you've seen anything like that, or, or if it's something you'd say, yeah, I think people should check it out. I haven't noticed any large slowdowns from Boundary itself. Um, in a previous version, there were, it did create a lot of unnecessary um, compilation dependencies, but that's been... Um, fixed. So I think, I think he's being, I would say maybe a little bit um, conservative on some of those warnings, which makes sense. But I mean, if you need to rip it out, it's pretty easy to, it's just, you just remove all the boundary calls and then you're done. It doesn't 
really force anything on you in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, some I guess you might end up changing some of your module hierarchies to match it, but you kind of want to have that anyway. And I just really love it as a tool to just help you have good, um, I guess, hygiene on what you're calling from where and actually having a good handle of that without using something as um, heavy-handed as separate actual Elixir applications or Umbrella projects. So one of the things you mentioned in our in talking about how we can see some of the benefits to our projects, you mentioned that we should be on Elixir 1.11. When I was talking to you in preparation for this, you mentioned there's some things also coming in Elixir 1.12 or what will be 1.12, what's currently master. Could you tell us about some of those things? Yeah. So in Elixir 1.12... Oh, okay. So actually, so one of the things... So it's preparation for my um, the Codebeam Brazil talk and creating DevViz. I was looking through a bunch of different open source projects to see what their um, compilation dependencies are and see which ones I could um, improve. And so one of those was actually the, the changelog um, website. So I actually submitted a PR to that to reduce some compilation dependencies on the router, which the router is actually a big file in Phoenix in the sense that it takes a long time to recompile. So so fixing that, I think, made a, I think a considerable difference to the, some of their com- compilation times. So one of the other um, compilation dependencies that came up a lot that I wasn't able to improve both in my project and some of the open source projects I had or that, that I looked at were um, type specs and um, behavior specifically. So with the behavior, you pretty much, you're not forced to, but you're strongly encouraged to use um, type specs to refer to, like, say, a struct by its name. But unfortunately, right now in Elixir 1.11, that'll actually create a compile time dependency from your module to whatever um, struct you're referring to. That's bad because it's not actually required. Now, is that just like you're mentioning this around behaviors, but is that the case with just type specs in general? Like if I say this, this function returns this struct type and I'm using the, the type spec, you know, reference to it. Is that part of that problem? Uh, that is, yeah. Yeah, so any any type spec right now will um, cause a compile dependency. That's really interesting because I love type specs. You know, even I use Dialyzer, but I also love it mm-hmm. just because it documents. It just makes it so much more discoverable about what the purpose of this function is just by looking at its type spec. And I did not realize that that was causing these de- compile time dependency ties or links. So that's really interesting. So what is 1.12 doing about that? So in 1.12, referring to a, a module and a, and a type spec just doesn't create a compile dependency at all because even though you're referring to a module, it's not actually require a file to be recompiled when that file or any of the files it calls um, changes. So basically just in the compiler, they decided to not track it, to track it as not causing a compile dependency is what it kind of comes down to because the compiler is in charge of that. Yeah, that makes sense because like if you if you were saying this returned like a user type and the user changed, like, that's okay. Dialyzer runs at a different time. Like, it doesn't need to recompile. This kind of, like, brought another idea to my mind. I noticed I've been going through, looking through the Bytepack code base a little bit, and I noticed that they don't Mm -hmm. use specs at all anywhere. What do you you guys think about specs? So Mark said he uses them on everything. He loves them. What do you guys think, David and Jason? Do you guys use specs on everything? (laughs) I I generally use them. Not all the time, but... I do think it's helpful for kind of documenting your your thinking process and understanding what data is going in and out of a function. I don't. I definitely don't use it. Use them religiously. Also, with um, 
Well, with Elixir LS, you do get some nice um, dialyzer um, output when there are dialyzer errors that it does find. So I like them generally, but I know some people, especially they come from like a more, um, or I guess like a static typing background from Haskell, especially they try to put, they end up putting too much faith into dialyzer because dialyzer is very limited because it is just based on success typing. You need to be aware of what dialyzer can and can't do for you. And talking about like where we put things, like I don't put type specs on view related things, you know, like my live views or anything like that. One, it's hard to actually figure out what the type spec is supposed to be, <laughs> but it's like, mm-hmm. it's at the top of, of my chain and kind of like less important in that way. And I tend to put them more on the core business logic things, kind of like the traditional back endy kind of stuff. That's where I put them most. Yeah, that, I, I do the same thing. I, I don't I don't really do type specs in a lot of places uh, unless it's my core business logic. And even then, sometimes I'll do it purely out of documentation or to remember what all the different kinds, especially when you get one big with statement and you have all of these ways that returns can kind of drop through. I would go through the various functions that could drop through and I would take their their function signature and I would just place it into the type spec to remind myself that, oh yeah, this is what can come back <laughs> out of this. I Side tangent, I love with statements because they, they organize the positive path, the, the happy path at the, up, up, up at the top. But the one drawback I, I get, it ends up being frustrating to work with sometimes because if you're not capturing like a blanket, you know, else, everything that could fail that, then you really, it's harder to see what the, what the actual return is um, for those functions. So um, to help solve, uh, solve that problem for myself, at least I try to document that via type specs and just say, this is what error cases can come out of this. It's much more apparent what the positive um, signature is going to look like, but a lot less, uh, a lot less evident of, you know, what the, what the errors are going to be. But yeah, definitely business logic. I skip all the front end stuff. I don't, uh, it doesn't, I just don't do it. <laughs> well, Jason, in that discussion, you mentioned Elixir LS and how it can give us some, you know, developer experience kind of feedback as to, hey, dialyzers run in the background for you. And I see there's some problems here. I'm going to like squiggly underline them to kind of identify <laughs> yeah. them for you. You're also involved with the Elixir LS project. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background on the project itself, because I know it it has a longer history. Like uh, it was started by Jake Becker and, you know, maybe you can kind of just kind of give a background to where you came in and, you know, what you know about the project. Yeah. So as you're mentioning, the Elixir language server was started by Jake Becker. So he was working on that by himself for, I don't remember the exact time frame, maybe about a year, year and a half or so. And so he very much got it going. And during that time, it was also partially based on um, code from one of the main libraries that it did use, not ex- not completely, is um, ElixirSense. And so that was actually built by um, uh, Marlis Sariva. Yeah, so it used some code from there. It also copied some code from there into Elixir LS. But after, after a while, um, Jake Becker actually ended up getting um, burnt out on the project. And so he stopped... He stopped developing definitely as frequently, and then issues in PR started to pile up. He would occasionally come back and do some things, but it wasn't in any sort of consistent fashion. Around the same time, uh, Marlis stopped uh, most of his open source development as well. So Elixir Sense and Elixir LS were both stalled. They were still um, fairly usable, but there were definitely a bunch of issues that were starting to pile up. 
How did you then step into this situation and kind of get involved? One day I was talking on the Elixir Slack. I forget which channel. Maybe it was the Emacs channel, actually. Um, so I was talking with um, Andrew Summers and um, Travoke. I forget his real name, but that's his handle. And we were, I guess, maybe commiserating about the the fact that the Elixir LS and the Elixir Sense code had stalled. Travoke was basically like, well, we should do something about it. So he forked the forked the code, created a GitHub organization, and invited both of us to it. From there, we just started to to work on issues. We started on Elixir Sense, partially because there were some easier things to identify to fix there, but also in a large part because Elixir Sense had an actual open source license at that point, whereas Elixir LS did not have a have a license identified. So we didn't feel comfortable putting that much time into it when in the kind of like the legal standing wasn't um, super obvious. And also as part of that process, we did try and reach out to um, both um, Jake as well as Marlis to see if they'd be interested in in collaborating and switching to a more um, organizational structure where you'd have multiple committers that could um, pick up the slack when various people kind of drop out. Yeah, we never heard back from Jake about that, but we did end up hearing from um, Marlis. And so Marlis was like, oh yeah, sure, let's, let's do that. So he moved the canonical repo from his, um, under his personal um, namespace on GitHub over to the Elixir LSP um, organization. As for um, Jake, eventually another person, um, Justin Johnson, started to get involved a little bit with, um, on the, the Elixir LS side. And so he actually reached out to Jake. I don't know if it was via Twitter or just via GitHub issues. And he asked if he'd be willing to um, put an actual um, open source license on the Elixir LS code. Jake eventually did respond and it's like, oh yeah, that would be great. And so he pinged all the contributors and they settled on an Apache 2 um, license. So after that, we were able to do some more work on Elixir LS. And so now it's in a pretty good place. Yeah, it's great having an actual license so we can work on it with a clear conscious. Yeah, one of the interesting kind of takeaways I think I get from that for people who might have an idea of creating a library is just the importance of declaring your license. You know that that does affect how people want to engage and spend their time on that project. I think that's a that's a good little takeaway there. There's a lot that's interesting there that we could talk about too, just like the idea of burnout. You know, I imagine mm-hmm. that would have been a project where a lot of people would be using it and a lot of people would have problems of any kind and they just like yeah. be slamming like the issue tracker with like, oh, this is broken. This is broken. It's like, okay. Because we talked with Marlis in episode 25 and he talked about Elixir Sense and, along with some other projects that he's involved with. And Elixir Sense is part of that umbrella group that you're talking about. And with that, you know, he says, sometimes there's an, an issue with something that, oh, well, it needs to be handled in Elixir Sense. But, you know, people don't understand that. They're just going to like report the issue as Elixir LS because like that's the thing that I think I'm interacting with. For one, I guess, are you looking for, as part of this GitHub organization, are you looking for more contributions? Are you looking for people to get involved? How can people help out? We're definitely looking for people to get involved. And there is a, an open issue that I leave on Elixir LS to ask for more, more contributions. I used to have it pinned. I recently unpinned it. But it's still, it is still um, valuable and still that is something we're, we're looking for. The best way to get involved would be to look through some of the open issues and just ensure that they do have concrete reproduction steps. 
and just help us triage that way. And then also just try to fix some of the, the open issues if you see see any that you could do. And we do label at least some of them as a, I think, like good first contribution. So that's definitely a good place to start. And as far as like users filing them on, find the issues in the right places, I'm not super worried about that as long as you just try to use your best judgment. And it can be also confusing because a lot of people are using the VS Code um, extension, and there's a separate repository for that because some of the issues are specific to that, not most of them. With um, GitHub, I don't know when they introduced it, but they actually allow you to move issues between repositories. So that's actually yeah. fairly fairly painless to move it to the place that it fits best. But it's definitely not obvious if you're looking at Elixir LS and Elixir Sense trying to figure out where the issue should be filed. I'd like to point out too that um, you know Elixir LS started as a VS Code only kind of project. Uh, it was designed for VS Code, but it doesn't work with just VS Code, right? Like, yeah, that's that's got a big adoption rate, but there's also a COC Elixir, the uh, is it Conquer of Completion, Con- Completion of Conquer, whatever, the the Vim side <laughs> of uh, uh, of VS Code plugins um, that works with Elixir LS. There's an Emacs version. There's a, there's a lot of other other ways that Elixir LS is used and across editors, all the major editors as far as I know. And so it's it's really, really widely used and incredibly important to like developer happiness. You know, like the tooling is so mm-hmm. important to to developers. Um and I'd you know, I'd say even even if it did feel like or sound like that that uh you know Elixir LS had a lot of trouble um getting started and you know with with you know frequent crashes or something like that in your VS Code logs or something like it's really really rounded out I think to being a, a really solid you know part of you know my my editor workflow and so I'm really thankful that Elixir LS was started you know by Jake Becker and then also picked up by you know, a long list of contributors, you know, yourself included, Jason, like that is critical, you know, like <laughs> it's as important to me that Elixir LS works with my projects, the Elixir version that I'm, that I'm using. For example, I won't upgrade Elixir if it doesn't work with Elixir LS. Like it's that important to me. <laughs> and I think that it, you know, it's important to a lot of, a lot of folks out there um, as well. And it's, I can imagine it, it could be one of those thankless, you know, thankless jobs of, of keeping this kind of stuff up. So I wanted to, I wanted to express my gratitude for as much work as you do, you know, on this and all the other contributors too, um, on this, uh, Elixir sense included, like it's critical to, to how I work in Elixir. Thank you. And definitely the subject of other contributors, I need to uh, give a really big shout out to, um, I'm not sure completely how to pronounce his name, but, um, Lucas Sampson. So he's one of yeah. the core contributors to both Elixir LS and Elixir Sense, and he does um, a very, very, very significant portion of the work, I would say, in terms of like the real backend nitty gritty, analyzing the code to um, parse it in an error tolerant way, because we want to still give you some feedback about your project, even when it's not currently compiling. So he does a huge, huge amount of work there. I'm totally agreed with you on developer happiness and extensions, because that's just a really I think it's a really important facet of language adoption even. Yeah. Yeah, I know um, it's gotten better now. But in the earlier days, especially, I feel like, you know, it would it'd crash a lot. It wasn't its own fault, right? It was just like people weren't necessarily aware of uh, what the problem was, especially when you're like coming from VS Code and you realize, oh, I have to go to this little, 
you know, view, output, and then see, then I can see the logs for why it's crashing. Oh, now I can fix it because that's my problem, you know, but I think some of that's been hidden, not, not by any fault of Elixir LS project or even VS Code's Elixir LS plugin. So I just want to make people aware that I've created two blog posts that please check a link for those in the show notes, but it is for doing Elixir development in VS Code. Now there's a lot of editors, you know, like there's a lot of ways you can do Elixir code, but if you are using VS Code, which is very approachable, then I've written two blog posts on how to get it set up and how to deal with those problems where it says, oh, this is crashed. And why is that? Like, what do I need to do? Maybe I need to change the way I'm using the tool. Maybe I just need to be aware of something. Like one of the issues is just being aware that the Elixir version that I'm using matches the OTP version of Erlang that I'm using. You know, that can cause problems. And it's like, I, I should have that set up correctly anyway for my project, just for my project to be happy. But, you know, th- little things like that. So please check those out so you can have a better experience. I too, I just want to thank you and the team. And, you know, I wish I could thank Jake Becker too, personally, just for the effort and, and the work that he's put into it to get it to where it is, because it was that kind of tooling that made me much more comfortable and confident with adopting Elixir personally. Just being able to get just that basic, you know, enum dot and get code completion to see what are all the functions and what are the arguments that they take. And then just and then, you know, being able to see the the documentation right in my editor, but also then getting that documentation for my own code. It's super helpful. So I encourage everyone to be able to I, I want everyone to be able to use it. So I'm yeah. glad you were able to come on and kind of share some of that information too. Yeah. The the two top problems I see with Elixir LS running is, is yeah, you, you don't have Elixir like right in the, the, the right version or your build folder, you know, kind of got into a wonky state. Usually that happens for me because um, if I'm upgrading my Elixir version, you know, and I'm switching between branches. Yeah. My build folder is, is screwed up. Like I need to wipe it out and recompile everything. Um, and Elixir LS, uh, is the same, is the same story. It uses that, that build folder, uh, as well. So usually those two things will solve, you know, all the problems that I have with Elixir LS not starting. <laughs> it, the, it's just more difficult because like it's in my project, I can see dependency problems. You know, I can see compile problems. With Elixir LS, it's it's hidden in a in a log somewhere else, and the way it manifests is that I my jump to definition doesn't work anymore. You know, <laughs> that's how I found out that you know my build folder has gotten gotten wonky, or um, I, I didn't actually have you know the the right Elixir version installed for it. Yeah, and a note on that is that Elixir LS actually has its own own build folder that's separate from your Elixir project. So that's in the so at the root of your project, there's a dot Elixir LS um, folder. And there's a build yeah. folder inside of that. But one of the if you're running into any issues with Elixir LS, the first step should probably be to close your editor, um, completely delete that dot Elixir LS directory, and then start it back up. Because switching Elixir versions definitely causes issues like that, as well as adding dependencies to your project has some race conditions currently. Yeah. Or I'll uh, be throwing in a dependency and I'm thinking it's working, but Elixir LS is fetching underneath uh, for me, I think, or maybe it's the tool. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it's fetching the dependency and it turns out that like, oh, I I can't actually use that dependencies version because there's, you know, a dependency problem. Like it requires this other thing to be bumped or whatever. Um, Yeah. Things, things like that. Like trivial problems, things that I'll, it'll end up being like fixed at some point anyway, by, by me, the user. Um, But 
Yeah, really appreciate it. And uh, li- likewise, you know, Elixir LS uh, has uh, this organization, GitHub organization with all the tools in, uh, underneath. Uh, Elixir Editors is a, is a similar one, but for editor support, um, like syntax highlighting or in, indenting, uh, things like that. So kudos to, to those, those folks too that, that contribute to those. I'm curious, what do you think is the next thing that you're doing with Elixir LS? I, I see a couple of repos in the org and i'm curious about some of them for example the plts what, what's up with that <laughs> yeah so the, the plts is something i'm hoping will will pan out but my idea is to pre-compile some of the plts that are more commonly used or maybe even extensively and have those be downloaded from github when you need them rather than having to build them on your local machine i'm not completely sure if this will pan out yet but that is a big issue that people run into with um, Elixir LS because Elixir LS uses Dialyzer and Dialyzer takes a really long time the very first time you're starting it up and it'll basically spin your fans up mm-hmm. on your uh, computer for like at least maybe 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And that throws people off, especially if they don't understand why that's happening and what they'll get from it. So I'm hoping that by downloading those pre-compiled, we'll be able to um, shorten that time considerably. Gotcha. That'd be interesting. So it doesn't need any cross-platform kind of stuff. It's just, uh, you know, for this Elixir version and this Erlang version, you know, the, there's the PLTs for them. Just download it like a binary, basically. Interesting. I wonder if that's something that could be pulled into Bob because they do all those permutations there. Yeah, interesting. Maybe. Well, Jason, are there any other things that you can share? Like just kind of like you as you and the team are talking and you're thinking about like, well, where do we want to go next? Are there any kind of hints that you can give us as to what is important to the team that you guys want to bring in next or focus on for the whole Elixir LS organization and your goals? I would say my overall focus right now is on on stability. So just fixing any any crashes that that exist and just like general improvements in that area more so than new new features. Uh, another interesting or another PR that's um on the way is one about um, improving the speed of formatting. And so that's kind of mostly there. It's stalled a little bit, but that's actually by um, Ben Wilson from um, Absinthe. So I'm hopeful that'll get in soon and that'll fix some of the formatting um, speed improvements that got a little bit slower on a on a recent Elixir LS version because we were being more specific about which files we, we format. So it turns out that path.wildcard can be really slow on various projects because it's actually traversing it actually hits the file system to traverse a bunch of your files, which I didn't actually realize at first. So that's something to watch out for in your your code if you're making a bunch of use of it. So it's sitting there traversing node modules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes that does happen. <laughs> I saw an antidote that that was actually one way somebody found how to how to uh, beach ball their new Mac M1 chip was to have have it copy a node modules folder. That's like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I once got a no, I once got a kernel panic on Mac by deleting my node modules folder. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, I know we've covered a lot of different topics. Is there anything we haven't really addressed or maybe we skipped over a little bit that you'd like to talk about before we close? Sure. There were a couple more changes in 1.11 that I wanted to to mention. So one of the greatest changes in there is that when you use def delegate, that no longer creates a compilation dependency. Previously, the file that you were depending on with def delegate was a compile dependency, which means that any files that it calls at runtime will cause that file to be recompiled. 
because I, I really like Def Delegate as a tool to help you um, organize your code and provide um, interfaces to different um, subsystems. So it's great that now you can use it more often without having to worry about all these compile dependencies. And so instead of a compile dependency, that is now just an export dependency. So the file you're delegating to is recompiled and the actual public interface of that file changes, then that'll cause your file to be recompiled. So that's very infrequent compared to any file that the def delegated file calls out to at runtime, which could be very often like nearly every module in your project. Elixir 1.11 introduces the export dependencies in general. So similarly, referring to a struct at compile time is now just an export dependency rather than a compile dependency. So that's something, a technique I really like to use on um, function heads. So you actually pattern match on the struct. So you get an error right away if that function doesn't receive the struct that you were expecting. Yeah, that, that's a, a code pattern I like to use too. It's great for documentation, but like there's been other improvements there where it'll, within that function body, it says, oh, you're passing in a user struct. I can now, and you just say, you know, user dot something. It can say, oh, that's not, it's not a valid attribute of that struct. I think that's, that's great. Those are some great improvements. So yeah, people should be on Elixir 1.11. Yeah, definitely. And just a quick note on with Elixir LS, if you do do that pattern matching in your um, function head, uh, Elixir LS can then use that to determine the type of that um, variable, and it'll actually give you um, auto-completion of the fields of that struct. That is really cool, too. And I know um, some of that was done around, gosh, it was ectoschemas that uh, Marlis, he talked about having done that. So like, I don't know if it's generalized to just all structs, but I know an ectoschema is a struct. But just being able to get that completion of being able to see, oh, customer dot and da 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 da, I can kind of flip through the thing, say, oh, billing address, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's really nice. Another project that I um, help maintain that I like to just give a maybe a short plug for is called Xsync. So this is a library that helps you reload your code. So in some sense, it's an alternative to the Phoenix um, code reloader. But especially if you're not using Phoenix, I would recommend Xsync. Basically, when you make a change to your code, it'll recompile it automatically. And I actually use it in my, um, if you use Scenic, which is like a graphical library for Elixir, I have a Scenic code reloader. So that'll allow you to see your changes basically live. So you make a change, it'll recompile your code and it'll reload your scene. And so you'll see their changes versus the typical development flow is to actually make a change to your file, kill your server, restart the server, and then it'll recompile. And then you can see your changes. Okay, that's really cool. Uh, when you'd mentioned before this Xsync, I, I really wasn't sure what the scenario was for it. And that totally makes sense because like Phoenix is doing that automatically for you. But there are plenty of other projects that aren't Phoenix first. Uh, and so that would be a, a really helpful thing. Yeah. Well, even still, Phoenix, don't you have to run a request for it to catch the recompile? So you're saying this one just yeah. catches like the file save and then recompiles. Yeah, it uses file watchers. So it'll start recompiling um, immediately, which can be... I think generally something you'd want rather than having to wait for a new request to come in because it's just it's a faster feedback loop. And another cool trick you can do is you can um, have it run code. You can have Xsync run code whenever your file your files change and then after everything's done recompiling. So I actually use that in a sort of almost test-driven development sort of style where if I'm working on a piece of code, I'll have it print out the results of that function um, as soon as you change your code. So... I can just make a change in the editor and then I see the new results in my console. Nice tip. 
Well, Jason, if people want to follow you online or get involved with the Elixir LS project, maybe you can kind of direct them as to where the best places to go for that are. Yeah. So if you're interested in Elixir LS, you can probably, best thing you would be to do is just to follow the the issues and the project on GitHub. So that's Elixir LSP slash um, Elixir LS. Um, also, I make a lot of Elixir LS announcements on my Twitter, which is at Boston Valter. You can also follow my website, which is just jasonaxelson.com. Awesome. We'll have links to all those in the show notes. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on and giving us uh, some more background as to some of the really important tools that underpin a lot of our development and just the experience of people as they're coming into the Elixir space. And also, thanks for sharing information on DepFizz and how we can help tease apart some of those problems to get better compilation experience with our projects. That's all good stuff. So, But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Hey, if you are newer to Elixir and want to get some extra practice and a more thorough understanding of pattern matching, check out my free pattern matching course at thinkingelixir.com.